We are in a section of 1 Peter that provides a basis for a variety of social relationships, including government, work, and home. The relational values are spelled out in chapters 2 and 3, but here in verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2, is the heart of why we maintain what we might call a high order in these relationships. Peter answers a big question in verses 21 through 25, and in so doing, provides a fuel or motivation when we experience adversarial relationships. Anybody had those in their life? Adversarial relationships? The church has traditionally defined big sins in terms of moral issues, but how does this wash when at the same time relationships are neglected? Our manner matters. What influence is there if we take some moral stances but treat the people around us with disrespect? What does a pastor have who grows a church and yet is aloof and controlling with staff and a congregation? What does a leader of, let's say, a pro-life organization have to lead the organization to success, but he is consistently cruel to his wife? Paul says, when we don't love, when we don't relate well, that all of our exploits add up to a zero when it comes to God's scale. Paul said it this way, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Taking stances while neglecting relationships is the heart of a Pharisaic approach. What I want us to do is discover again the Jesus way of relating. Let's all stand as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Heavenly Father, we entrust ourselves to you today, not knowing what the future holds. And while our trials may not be exactly what Jesus experienced, there's still tribulation, hardships, 
I pray for these, my dear brothers and sisters, that they would find comfort, that they would find your guidance, that they would experience your love. Do a work in us in the midst of these things. May we be the kind of people that suffer well. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. For to this you have been called. What have we been called to? What does that mean? To say we've been called to something is to conjure up that there's a purpose. In this case, the purpose is doing good while suffering. This is not to say that all of us will suffer to the degree that Christ did, but that whatever suffering takes place, whatever hardships we experience, that we respond in the same way that Christ responded. The Christian is called to keep his gaze upon these kingdom values enumerated by Peter. Listen to what else he says in this book, what we're called to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a marvelous light. Some of you don't believe it. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for, the, uh, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And then in 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So here we see a higher purpose to things in life that we are given by God that we're, that we're called to. Kingdom values. And one of these is that in suffering, we resemble the attitude and manner of Christ when we suffer. Now, listen, I gotta just be honest with you. When I read a passage like this, there can be a certain glaze that comes over your eyes and it's like, really? I mean, how in the world am I going to suffer like Christ did when I look at his example? It just seems way too out there. It just seems impossible. And I would say it is in our flesh, in and of ourself. But when I begin to think that Christ is in us and we are in Christ, and I begin to think that God is prescribing these attitudes and actions for us, would he prescribe something that is absolutely impossible in Christ? No, he wouldn't. 
These things are available by the resources that Christ provides for us. That gives me some hope. Let us notice what is not included in this passage. And that is that a growing Christian will be void of suffering. I don't think I have to explain this too much for you. I think you've heard me teach over a long period of time. You know that I'm not one to say that obedient and faithful Christians will not suffer. That's not been our MO, because I don't think it's the MO of the Bible. I think it's a wrong-headed type of theology today that claims that Christians will not suffer if they're in the will of God. And those who promote such ideas have neglected the example of Christ. The term for example is a Greek word for sketching a pattern, like a child would sketch the lines of a figure and, and outline a picture. So we're to, we're to follow the outline that Jesus has given us. We're to follow his footsteps. What is that pattern? Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So when it says he committed no sin, it certainly speaks of the innocence of Christ when he suffered unjustly, but it also is a statement of the full range or reaction to his accusations and persecutions. Um, that he experienced these things fully because he never sinned. And I think of just how incredible that is that for us as human beings, when we're tempted, we often sin, so we don't experience the full range, right? Because we gave in. But he never gave in once. And so his temptation went to the nth degree. It's an amazing thing to think about. And not once did he give in. Did he sin in motive or in action? Wow. Now, imagine how extreme the urge was to call on God's judgment, right? Matthew 26 gives us a story of Jesus being arrested in the, garment, uh, in the garden, and he says this. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, he had the power, he has the authority, he could have done it. But this was strength under control. Unless you think that's no longer needed today, I would remind you that more people have been martyred for Christ in the past 50 years than in the first 300 years of Christianity. He did not retaliate but he left 
the judgment to his father. That's how he kept from sinning. Now, to sin does not mean that we defend the defenseless. Clearly, there are examples of that being a good thing in the Bible. Sin does not mean that we cannot um, afford the opportunities that we have for justice. That's not what this is speaking about. Sin means we're not to seek revenge on our persecutors. In addition, no deceit was found in his mouth. You know, sometimes a person will lie to prevent further pain. Sometimes a a persecutor will give them an opportunity to recant their testimony and not receive further punishment. Jesus didn't do that. There's a story in A.D., 155, where the persecution against Christians was rampant across the Roman Empire. And this happened in the city of Smyrna. And the proconsul of Smyrna put out an order that the bishop of Smyrna, by the name of Polycarp, was to be found, arrested, and brought to the public arena for execution. They brought Polycarp before thousands of screaming spectators who wanted to see some blood. But the proconsul had compassion upon Polycarp because he was neither, uh, nearly 100 years old. And so to Polycarp he said, curse the Christ and you will live. And the crowd waited for him to answer. And an amazingly bold and strong voice, he said, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme my king and lord? And after that, he was martyred. No deceit was found in his mouth. When Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. Reviled refers to insulting and abusive speech. Our natural inclination when we're being attacked is to protect ourselves verbally, right? I think that's something probably any of us can understand here, that when somebody accuses you falsely, It's a natural inclination to throw out a few zingers, right? We get that. Christ never did that. He didn't even threaten his persecutors to get them off his back. I mean, who could blame Christ? He is God, right? If he said, one more insult, one more lash, And I'll make sure God reserves a special place in hell for you. He had the ability. He had the authority. And he never did that. He never did that. That's pretty amazing. I mean, the feeling of trying to get your enemies off your back by threatening them, that's very understandable. 
I've been attacked verbally. I've had some try to hit me. Some have threatened. But it's nothing compared to what Christ has done. Imagine somebody yelling and cursing you and spitting on you. And then they put on a hat with thorns and there's blood rushing down your face. And then they whip you until the flesh is torn from your back and you're whipped so much you are unrecognizable. The temptation to lash back would be immense. And yet he never did. And what Peter is saying to us is, you'll be called to do the same thing. When you are mistreated, not to lash back, not to seek vengeance. Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here we have the reason that this is possible. You know, you can't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and by the exertion of your will do these things that Peter is asking. There has to be some kind of supernatural transaction to take place. It has to be less of me, more of him. And in this context, Peter puts it in words of entrusting ourselves to God. By entrusting myself to God, that means no matter what happens to my body and soul, they're both in his hands. Now, we know that some can kill the body, but that does not impact my eternal destiny, does not impact the love that God has for me, does not impact my relationship with God, that he still cares and loves me. I know I am loved even if others hate me. Do you know that? There are people who struggle their whole life because their parents did not properly love them. There are people who have wounds that will not heal because a spouse has deserted them or refuses to meet their needs or refuses to love them. Those are very real wounds. I'm not making light of it. But is God big enough that in the midst of those things, he can still love us? And that we can know of that love? Absolutely. You know, there's been a a couple times, well, probably more than a couple times, that Janet and I, whether it's dealing with something in our family, our marriage, or a situation, we will say to one another, what difference does Christ make right now? What difference does me being a Christian make in this situation? And it has a way of kind of getting our focus on 
you know, I don't have to choose anger. I don't have to choose bitterness. It is understandable. Please don't misunderstand me. Trust me, I have plenty of experience. But it's a choice that I make by entrusting myself. I realize some can kill the body, but they cannot impact my destiny or the care that he has for me. I know that I'm loved, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor parents nor spouses nor friends nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm not making light of the need for forgiveness. I'm not making light for the need of doing whatever we can to deal with those things of the past. I'm just saying life is not done. I'm just saying those are not insurmountable. I'm just saying there is hope. Amen? I could hear testimonies from some of you who've told me stories that I've not experienced. Great pain, and yet you've seen God in the midst of that. By committing myself to God, I am leaving all claims of justice in his hands when it comes to my persecutors. Colossians 3.25 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Don't foister this thing by telling everybody your sad story, gaining friends who will, you know, sympathize and thinking that's where the meat is, that that's going to assuage my pain. Don't grumble, but know that the Lord is able to touch those areas of our hearts that are hurt the most. It's an amazing hope. Now, there's a difference between having an honest conversation with somebody, sharing our story, and grumbling. But my point is that God gets first shot at this, right? And I think it's, it's not unusual that we'll say to God, I'm done. I've had enough. And I think this is what was happening. But we're to leave it to God. And why do I leave it to God? I'll tell you why. Because number one, he knows all the evidence, right? And number two, he knows the motives. And I don't know either. I mean, how many times do we have conversations with somebody and trying to figure out, and I've been, you know, a moderator of different situations, and you're trying to get to the facts of, what's going on, and, and sometimes you can't read all that's happening, right? You don't know the motives that people have. God knows all that. He'll be able to ferret through all that. So that's why justice is left in his hands. 
our Lord's humility and submission were not evidence of weakness, but of power. Jesus could have summoned the armies of heaven to rescue himself. And instead it says he committed himself to God. And the Father always judges righteously. By repeatedly entrusting himself to God. That doesn't mean he's stuffing his anger. He's not subscribing to some therapeutic state of or expressing his anger. There's something bigger than this here. He can acknowledge a genuine injustice is done. And you could probably name these in your life as well. A genuine injustice is done to himself. And he acknowledges that he lives in a moral universe that says that those things are wrong. That moral universe was created by God, and God is the judge against all the injustice. And so instead of personal vengeance, he leaves the justice to his father. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. I remember talking to one lady who was locked in a coffin by her father. Worst kind of abuse you can imagine. Father dies, she struggles her entire life. Goes to a counselor, counselor says, who was a Christian, by the way. Counselor says, what would you like to see happen? She goes, well, I'd like to kill my father. And she goes, well, we can do the next best thing. So what does she counselor to do? They go to his grave with a gun and she shoots into the grave. And I ask her, did that help? She goes, no, not at all. It's because justice is not in our hands. That God, we have to entrust ourselves to him and we have to realize that part of that is that he will take care of the justice end. He doesn't just leave us there. And he's calling you right now to let you know he is here. I won't say who that was. <laughs> he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christ was willing to bear the cross because he is a substitute for us. He stood in our place. We read in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, he might become the righteousness of God. And then the passage of Isaiah that Peter quotes is, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's interesting that Peter mentions 
his body on a tree. And you know, the Jewish people did not crucify their criminals. They stoned them. But if the victim was especially evil, they would hang his dead body from a tree. That was a mark of shame prescribed in Deuteronomy 21-23. And Peter seems to have this in mind as a backdrop, signifying that the extent of the sacrifice of Christ dying on a tree for the worst of sinners. I'd be in that line. That's the shame he took for us. Dying to sin, living to righteousness, it's a practical result of this sacrifice. Remember the context here. Peter is not talking to people who are, you know, trying to live their best life now, enjoying all the riches they can. He's talking to a bunch of people who are being persecuted. He's saying that in the midst of turmoil, righteousness is still our goal. Not escape. How? How? It's only because of the indwelling Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, it may be hard because of your situation in life because everything's going good. You've got everything you've wanted. Maybe your hardships are different than thorns on the head and a cross. I get it. But don't you think if we're to live to righteousness in that and not revile and not have deceit and follow the example of Christ, that it also applies in lesser things? I think that pretty well covers us no matter what we face, right? No matter what befalls us. And then he says, by his wounds you are healed. Does God physically heal? Absolutely. Does this verse promise physical healing for all Christians who claim it? It does not. Unless you ignore the context and stretch the meaning. First off, Peter uses a past tense. They have already been healed. It's an accomplished fact. Is physical healing an accomplished fact for all Christians? Hardly. The wounds refer to physical beating that Christ received through the lash. The subject of bodily illness, diseases, are not mentioned in this context. By the way, the Greek word for healing is used elsewhere in the Bible. It doesn't always refer to physical healing. In Hebrews 12, 13, when the writer is speaking about the discipline of God, he speaks of healing what has been out of joint, or in other words, the unconfessed, unrepentant sin that is deserving of God's discipline. And when the person receives the discipline of God, they are healed 
because the relationship with God is restored. In Matthew 13, 15, Jesus is speaking about the purpose of parables and says, for this people's heart are grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. The meaning is one can hear the word of God, and healing comes by forgiveness of their sin, and they turn to God. The topic is the relationship with God, the relationship with the word. My point is merely that we can't take some wooden application and say every time healing, the word is used in the Bible, it refers to physical healing. It's simply not the case. As one commentator, Gary Derrickson, wrote, employing synonymous parallelism, Isaiah uses four statements to describe forgiveness of sin through the death of the Messiah, the suffering servant. Wounded, bruised, chastisement, and stripes all describe the same thing, namely Messiah's death. Similarly, transgressions and iniquities are parallel as are peace and healed. Thus, as Isaiah's use of healed refers to forgiveness of sin, not remission of disease, so does Peter's. Christians do not escape the effects of disease by their identification with Jesus on the cross, end quote. Now, there is ultimate healing in heaven, but on earth, Christians will get sick. God can heal, but that's not promised to all Christians on the earth. Just like being delivered from all hardships is promised. That is heaven, not earth. As we look at life that's lived in sin without Jesus Christ, it's difficult to find a better word than sickness. I thought of that this week, as I've seen across our nation, people protesting for the right to kill another human. And I can't think of another word that describes it better than sickness. They're not the enemy, they're victims of the enemy. but they have a worldview, a system that causes their heart to be sick. And it's likewise hard to think of a more apt word than healing to describe the forgiveness of God and salvation that we have in Christ that was secured through his sacrifice. Healing. Sickness, these are great words to describe our relationship with God. For you were straying like sheep, speaking to the Christians, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Straying like sheep, 
speaks to the wavering of Christians under persecution. We've all seen the unfortunate result of Christians who languish in their faith because of difficulties. The the death of a loved one, the doctor who says the cancer is back, the desertion of a spouse. These are heartbreaking occurrences. And a believer in the midst of unjust suffering and pain can walk away from the Lord and choose bitterness and anger. It is understandable, but let us know it is a choice. Or we can choose to entrust ourselves to the Lord, as Peter is prescribing here. Now listen, if you have a friend who is suffering and whose faith is faltering, the worst thing we can do, well, not the worst, but a bad thing we can do, is give just trite phrases, right? We're to listen. We're to hear our brothers and sisters in pain. We sit with them. We don't try to outdo their story with our story of pain. We listen. We pray for them. And if at all possible, we help them return to their chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let's remember, there's probably not a one of us in here who has not faltered, who has not, because of trials that we've gone through, had dark times. The word for overseer here is episkopos. It was used elsewhere of a protector of public safety, a guardian of honor and honesty, or the overseer of right education of public morals, the administrator of public law and order. And in Homer's Iliad, Hector, the great champion of the Trojans, is called an episcopos, who during his lifetime guarded the city of Troy and kept its noble wives and infants safe. So to call God the episcopos of our souls, the overseer, is to call him our guardian, our protector, our guide, and our director. All those things hold true even though I'm in pain. Listen, Jesus entrusted himself to his father, and we're the recipients of this, by the way, lashes on his back, You could not even recognize him because of the punishment. And God is the protector. God is the guide. Yes. God was still sovereign. Even in the midst of these horrible atrocities happening to him. If Job could have used this Greek word, he would have. 
God was my episcopos, even though my wife turned against me, even though I lost everything that I had. In his love, he cares for us. In his power, he protects us. And in his wisdom, he guides us. It's sometimes difficult to put God's care and love at the intersection of suffering in our lives. I get it. I look back when Janet and I experienced multiple surgeries with a newborn. Or I look back of when our marriage was in crisis. Or I remember times of conflict with folks who appeared bent on discord in the church. And in all of this, God never wavered. I wavered, right? I sometimes chose to be estranged and experience some dark times, but his grace was always available. He guided, he protected, he guarded, and I knew those things when I entrusted myself to him. Listen, I don't have some seven quick list of how to entrust yourself to God, okay? I'm not gonna give you some formula. There is no formula. We have to hash that out in our own relationship with God. I hate formulas. But I know it's gonna involve his word. I know it's gonna involve prayer. I know it's gonna involve a lot of humility. And I know it's probably gonna involve a lot of tears and crying out to God. And I know it's gonna involve my mind saying, I do not have to be bitter. I do not have to live in this anger, but I can entrust myself to God. It is a choice we make. We are not condemned to a life of bitterness and anger. My hope for all of us, for those of you who are deeply hurting, is that in this day, you can move closer to entrusting your souls to him. And maybe, maybe you haven't had to do that quite yet in your life. It'll come. Trust me, it'll come. And I hope that at that moment, you enjoy his comfort. There's something about going through times like that for us. That our faith builds because I, I realize, you know, God did that for me there and over there, and I know he can do it for me here. And our faith begins to build, and we begin to mature. And trust your soul to him. And then this example that Christ set doesn't seem so impossible in his strength. Let's pray.